Welcome to F*** the Laundry, conversations for purpose-driven women who have better things to do. I'm your host, Elise Nation, intuitive transformation coach and highly sensitive mum of two, on a mission to empower you to be the shero of your story. Join me as we explore how to 10x the sh- out of life, love and business. Hello, welcome everybody. Welcome ladies, sisters, mamas to this really exciting episode where I have a special guest, Loretta Hart, joining me all the way down in Ocean Grove in Victoria. And I'm just, I'm I'm excited about all interviews, but this one in particular, it wouldn't let me go. Um, And to give you a little bit of an overview, I actually met Loretta by her husband initially. So it's only been quite a brief connection for us, but um, already I'm loving what's unfolding. So when I went down to Victoria and I was gifted this beautiful property to to look after um, for December, I needed some love on my body and I absolutely adore Bowen therapy. If you have never experienced Bowen before, I highly recommend it. And so I Googled and I found Matt Um, and I had a couple of sessions with Matt and we got talking about a couple of different subjects and one in particular and a story he shared with me just really moved me. Um, I'll let Loretta go into it, into her side more in detail, but in a nutshell, it was, um, about connection with babies and, and, and babies in spirit, um, and the gifts that they can really bring to us when we're open to receiving them um, and how their invitation can transcend physicality, can transcend our humanness sometimes when we get stuck in in our bodies and in what we can see um, and just also the power that that we can have in, in overcoming challenges, in overcoming sadness and grief and loss um, and I just got so excited by this story of uh, this is just one insight from from Matt in his experience, but but through Loretta and wanting to know more about that. So Loretta is actually a happiness strategist, which I love. I love that that term, a happiness strategist who is here to help women find their happiness. Um, and she's a mentor for those navigating life, but also business, and um, of course parenting in in amongst that she's a mum as well um and she has this movement which is only new fairly new but it's called the take up space movement and she's doing some amazing things in the world I particularly feel like she has so much to share um for my generation and so welcome Loretta thank you for being here oh thanks Elise what a beautiful introduction it's always interesting to hear someone else introduce you you know what are the pieces that inspire them and uh, yeah thank you that was really lovely you know one of the things that I always think about you know when we people talk about their purpose and their why and mine's actually to inspire positive change I just love to help people move from one state to the next I used to be a primary school teacher you know I've, I've done it in business I do it at the checkout I, I actually you know with it when the checkout chicks bit flat I'm like hey what's going on and I, I tend to do it all over the place and but I think what's really interesting is the conversation maybe we're going to launch into next about our little boy and about that time was I actually found my stuff self really stuck and really in a place of no movement, no, no, no ability for change. And that has then driven the second part, I think. I had a, I had a life before Flynn. I have a life post Flynn. And I think that the experience of losing him has um, accentuated, might be the word, this drive that I have about supporting others to create the change because I knew it was tough beforehand to to create change in any area of your life, but I got such a dose of it um, through our loss of him that I became even more understanding of what it is to be stuck, lost in the shit, you know, in the mire, whatever that might look like. So, yeah, it's really beautiful to be here and just to share about that today. Wow. And so I just want to elaborate um, 
seeing as we're there now, because it's a, it's a really sensitive topic. What we're going to be talking about is um, Loretta's loss of Flynn being through this experience of a stillbirth. And when I heard this, I never actually had firsthand interaction with someone who had gone through that. And I just became so fascinated and like, how? How you made it through that? Because I myself experienced a miscarriage and the and the feeling of loss, even though I had this other part of me that knew that he was, you know, he was never gone, like my physicality was experiencing something so different. And so, you know, mine was very early term, but you actually carried Flynn full term. So I'd love I'd loved for you, you know, in that moment, Matt shared some things with me, but how did you start to come to terms with knowing that things weren't going to go necessarily how you initially thought? Sure. Is it okay if I just maybe just tell a bit of a bit of Flynn's story so you can sort of get the context of that? And and I also want to say that you mentioned a miscarriage, which I'm I'm really sorry to hear that that's part of your journey as well. And I know that there are going to be many, many, many women who listen to this and that's part of their journey. You know, 110,000 women um, miscarry a year in Australia. It, the, it's huge and it's hidden and it's not talked about. Um, so if someone's listening to this and that's their story and part of their journey, um, we've got you in this. I just, just really feel like I need to say that often a woman who miscarriages measures herself against a woman who's had a stillbirth or, or maybe a baby who later in term and they say, your loss is greater than my loss and they diminish their loss. And I um, dispute that 100% because we both started pregnancy with hopes and dreams and whether you get six weeks, eight weeks, 14, 20, 32, 38, whatever amount of weeks you get in that pregnancy, you still have lost those hopes and those dreams and, and that life. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, yeah, but Loretta, you know, you did more. It's bigger. It's not. I just want to say that. Is that okay? So this is our story of Flynn. So we, we had two little boys, uh, Lockie and Jess, and they were four and two. And it's always, I don't know about you, but it's a, for us it was a big decision to decide whether to have a third baby. It's, it's a bigger car. It's, it feels like a bigger house. It feels like, you know, we've got one each when we go out. Like, what do you do with a third? You know, like there's all these sort of extra complications. And, and so we decided, though, after some thinking that we would, we would try for a third baby. Um, and Flynn was conceived and um, I rocked along to my 18-week ultrasound um, without Matt this time because I, this was our third. Like, we, you know, I had this down pat. I knew the run of the mill. I knew what was going to happen. Um, and it just so happened that my next door neighbor, her child was nine. He was in grade three or four. He had a, um, a student free day at school. And she said, could you look after him for me today? And I said, sure. I don't mind having your nine-year-old. He's a great kid. I've got to go and have an ultrasound, but that's fine. So, um, I took Daniel, who was nine and my son Lockie to the ultrasound and I dropped my two-year-old Jesse off to a girlfriend because I thought that was too much for, for Daniel to handle in the waiting room. So they had snacks and they had a couple of books to read and, you know, 18 week ultrasound, you're in, you're out. It's not, you know, it doesn't take that long. So um, I went in for the ultrasound with a very full bladder, as you have to do. And you know how this, the sonographer turns the, the um, TV screen, the monitor towards you? Like they sort of get settled and they get, they find everything and they say, here, look, here's baby's heart. You know, you know how we all have had that experience? He didn't turn the screen. And he didn't say anything to me. He just became very methodical and very clicking his buttons and, and was very quiet. And I thought, this is not, this is odd. And I started to worry there was something wrong. But I knew there was, that my baby was alive because I could, he was wearing glasses and I could see the reflection of the heartbeat in his glasses. So I'm lying on the table looking at this guy and I could see just this reflection of this, this pulse hyper. and I'm like hey tuning into like hyper aware of like what information can I can I receive yeah yeah you totally because he's giving me nothing yeah. and 
So I'm like, okay, so we're fine. We're fine. We're fine. This is just, you know, he isn't very personable. You know, maybe this is his, it, I was going through all these reasons why he wasn't talking to me. And then he started asking questions like, are you sure this is for your first scan? Yeah, I, I think I'd remember if I'd had others. There's nothing else that you need to tell me about your history. Not pretty sure I don't. Thinking to myself, could we, can we get onto this? Because I have got a full bladder and I've got a four-year-old and a, and a, the next door neighbor in the waiting room. I was in there an hour and a half. And um, when he uh, had done whatever he needed to do, he called in the doctor, and I wish I knew the term, radiologist potentially, and they were both looking at And I said, I just need to ask you because I'm a very compliant person. I'm a very, you know, I'll just wait. I'll just, you know, they'll give me information when they're ready. You know, I was, so I just said, is there something wrong? What do you need to tell me? And the radiologist said, uh, we're sending these results to your obstetrician and you need to talk to him. Oh. That was it. So I leave, I get up and I wipe the gel off my belly and I'm starting to feel really numb and just because of what I don't know. And I go into the toilet and I pick up my four-year-old and the nine-year-old who had been amazing in the in the waiting room. I pay for the experience. I um, go to pick up my two-year-old from my girlfriend and, she, I, and I walk in and she says, 10 fingers and 10 toes. And I said, I don't know, I didn't see anything. And she was just like, what? Went home. That afternoon we went to Melbourne, um, which had been an hour's drive, because my obstetrician phoned to say there was a series of abnormalities that were picked up about your baby and we're not sure what they're all pointing to. We can see that there's a club foot. We can see that there um, is only two vessels in the umbilical cord instead of three. We can see um, that he has a diaphragmatic hernia, so a hernia in his diaphragm. So it was far higher than it should have been. You need to go to Melbourne and have an amniocentesis. So we got in the car and we drove up, went to Ligon Street, for those who know Melbourne, to a genetic cyst place, I can't really remember. And we went in and had amniocentesis and then we had the results, so I can't, it must have been fairly quick. And the doctor sat with us and said, I can tell you you're having a boy. And we're like, awesome. But unfortunately, he has a collection of abnormalities that uh, would point to him um, having trisomy 18 was a diagnosis. So, you know, in conception, you know, we get one, we have all our pairs of chromosomes and they split and we get one for the mum and one for the dad and we get these new pairs. What happened with us is one of our sides didn't split and so instead of getting two into a cluster, we got three on the 18th pair. I didn't know what that meant, trisomy 18. And he said, you know, we have we have these abnormalities, but this, this is an issue, his, his lungs aren't developing, he has a heart issue, he has a diaphragmatic hernia, he has a club foot, he, um, uh, there was something else, oh, and the umbilical cord issue, and he just laid it all out for me. And I said, okay, but apart from all that, is he okay? And he looked at me like I was stupid. Because it, like, in hindsight, like, no, he was really not okay, Loretta. Like, but I just didn't understand. I didn't understand the gravity. I think I did, but maybe I was sheltering myself from it. I don't know. And they said, um, we suggest that you terminate this pregnancy. It's not viable. You need to go home and have a think about it. So we drove home and um, I went and saw my obstetrician. And my birthday's the 30th of April, so it's coming up. And it was actually on my birthday that we went to see the obstetrician and we went late in the night, you know, like he, he'd seen everybody and they just brought us in late. And he sat with us and we had a discussion about Flynn and about the viability of this pregnancy. Would we get to a live birth? And he told us that um, the chances of a live birth were about 5%. And then he said, and babies who are born with trisomy 18, their chance of a first birthday is about 5%. So there isn't a long life expectancy. But he said something really beautiful to us that night, which has always stayed with me. And he said, whatever decision you make, it needs to be the right decision for today and tomorrow 
and next year and in five years from now. And that really helped in our decision-making. Now, our decision is really, is really, and I'll share obviously what, what our decision was, but our decision was really our decision and I know that there are a lot of women and, and people who listen to this and will have made a different decision to us, but that doesn't make their decision the wrong or the bad or anything. We all make our own decisions based on what we have capacity for, I think. So our decision was to continue forward with the pregnancy and just to see. We wanted to give Flynn every opportunity to see how far we could go. And um, so we named him that, that day. Um, we gave him godparents. Um, and we shared about him to everyone that we knew because we didn't know how long we had him for. I was a teacher at a big school. Uh, I was a music teacher. So I taught the whole school, you know, all the preps, all the grade ones. I was very public, do you know what I mean? Like I was, I was in everybody's spaces. <clears throat> and um, and I, I remember writing a letter to the staff. We were, I don't know, we maybe we had like 60 or 70 staff because I didn't want to have to tell everybody individually. I wrote a letter and it was read out during a staff meeting. This is where we're at. And a beautiful friend of mine read it out and she said to me later that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. But I didn't want to have individual conversations. Just know that we're okay and know we're continuing forward and know that I might be up and down. And because I really, I really felt that people needed to know how to deal with us. Does that make sense? Like I think people take their lead from us, whether we're having loss or whether we're in the midst of loss or post or whatever it is, they will only do what we tell them because they don't know what to do in this. So I said, talk, talk to me normally, talk to me about normal conversations, um, ask me how I am if, I, if you feel like you want to, but you don't have to. So we journeyed on and um, at, at 31 weeks uh, I went into labour and um, it was a sunny, sunny July uh, morning. It was a Sunday. Uh, Matt and the boys had been outside building um, toolboxes or something, you know, and, and I could feel that I was going into labour. So we went to hospital and the obstetrician there wasn't my obstetrician. He was away as these, these things happen. And he said, I can't, I can't get you to Melbourne. This, this pregnancy, you're only 31 weeks and we don't have the technology here to keep this baby alive if born because of lung development. I said, it's okay. So we don't want, we don't want any intervention. We don't want everything. We just, we'll just have him. So we did. He died during labour. Um, he died during labour um, and we had a quite a quick birth and um, they were beautiful with us in the hospital. Whew. It's 19 years. It's 19 years this July and it probably sounds like it's yesterday. Um, but... Whilst we grow around our grief, our grief never really leaves. So if you're, if you're worried that God, grief is going to be your only state, it's not going to be your only state. If this is new for you, if you are newly bereaved, it feels like it engulfs every part of you, but it won't forever. I'm a happiness strategist. I help <laughs> people find they're happy, right? This is where I've gone to in life. And... But it's still there. Grief doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't go. We just grow in and around, around it. So I, um, I had, so we, so we, we had Flynn. We had a beautiful funeral. Unfortunately, Matt's father passed away six weeks later. Um, so we had two family funerals really close together. And then, um, and I had some time off and I, time off work. And I asked my mum, my mum had lost two babies, and um, I asked her how long it would take for me to feel like normal again. Because this is the question you want to know, like when does this pass? And she said, bless her, she said about six weeks. <laughs> right? She's a country girl and they got on with life, you know, and, and I'm one of seven. So mum didn't have time potentially to be yeah. whatever, right? 
So after six weeks, I went back to work and it, and I fell on a massive heap, as you, as you would expect. I just couldn't. I just, I just couldn't. So I had some counselling, which was beautiful. I had some beautiful help from a, a local bereavement service in Geelong. But I got to a point where I actually couldn't cry anymore. I just couldn't be sad anymore. Like I didn't want to be sad anymore. I didn't want to be crying all the time anymore. And I had these two little boys, Locke and Jess, who were four and two, who really needed me. So I am kind of exactly the date, but I remember packing up those sad emotions and I remember putting them all aside because I just, that was done. I was done with grief. I was done with sad. I was done with the pity in people's eyes. I was done and I needed to be here for my boys that I had here. And can I say, that is an excellent short-term strategy. And if you have, if you are using Definitely that strategy, yeah, if you are using that strategy, that's fine. It is not a long-term strategy. Yeah. Joy and happiness. And this is what, what really hit me about you was when I saw that video that you posted and you talked about that and it reminded me of the time where I, it was this awareness of realising that you can't, strategically close off all of these negative emotions and think that you get to choose only the good ones and it was like you know when you when you do that when you you cut off the negative it's like you you also cut off everything else because you go into that space of like the numbness yeah Um, Yeah. exactly and and I, I actually describe it as living behind a sheet of glad wrap because you can see everything around you. You can hear everything around you. You're at a party, you're at a gathering, you're at a whatever, but nothing permeates the, that, that glad wrap. Like nothing hits you, and you know what I mean? That, and that's where I and started to realise. It's vibrant. Like everything's like grey. Yeah. Like takes the colour and it's, it's almost like the sound isn't even as crisp. It's like muffled. Yeah. That's right. Actually, I've actually made a recording, a sound recording, and um, and it's called Grief is Grey. And the first line says, you probably think that grief is black, but it's not. It's grey. It's actually all beige. You know, it's actually just beige. Beige, yes. <laughs> because everything just comes the same. There's a, there's, a, there's a sameness about everything. And it's like, why can't I get excited about life? Yeah. And because we don't operate in only one hemisphere, in the happy joy hemisphere, because that needs the counterbalance of pain and sorrow and suffering. Unfortunately, hello, this is life. And like they say that, you know, love and pain are dance partners. They can't dance alone. They have to dance together. And I experienced what it was like when both love and pain are sitting out of the dance. Like it's, it's, it's numb. But it also coincided with busy time, busy mum rearing years, you know, being on the kinder committee and, you know, taking kids to sport and and almost um, it almost fed into uh, this busyness. I hate the word busy. I hate it when people say, I'm so busy. I'm like, man, you don't want to be busy. Avoidance. (laughs) I know. But I think it really fed into that. And, um, And I was looking for joy and I couldn't find it. You know, um, so I remember um, I went to a girlfriend's weekend away. We were gorgeous girlfriends from high school and I cried the whole way that I drove to this weekend. And I have had no, I didn't, there was nothing. I hadn't had a fight with Matt. We we had, didn't have money issues. Like what am I crying about? But I just howled the whole way there and I got there and we always drink a lot of champagne on the first night and I howled into every glass of champagne and they just held space. And I said, this is not what I want. But I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't, ha- there was nothing that triggered it. There was nothing that actually was like, oh, there you go, Loretta. This is, this is the shit thing and you need to move away from that. Well, I, I don't know. I didn't know what it was. But I think I just got to a point where this, the stuckness was too much. Yeah. And I have to, um, maybe this is, this is just what's coming to me now, but. There's a few moments when you were speaking. Firstly, like that story, uh, I was just in waves of emotion with you. <clears throat> and it was just so incredible. Thank you for sharing. I, I'm just blown away. And 
I just think you're even more incredible. I already thought that, but being able to to hear your journey and how much awareness that that you gained from this experience and how rich you are because you've been able to find those edges of yourself and actually embrace them over time. Um, but Matt said this thing to me and it's still there and he said that when he held Flynn, like he looked like a little old man and it was like he'd already had his life. Mm-hmm. And so there was that part but also just where you spoke to um when you said, is he okay? And it was that part of you having the awareness that like, okay, his body's having these challenges, but like his being was there. Like when did you start to be able to like receive him in the contribution that he is to your life now beyond that? A long time, a long time. Yeah, no, I think it was a I just need something to be okay in this in this conversation. I don't know. I don't understand what you're saying. And it, that was I think it was incomprehension. I um I uh, remember being in a, a business women's networking group, and part of that networking group was a psychic, and I avoided her like the plague. I did not want to make eye contact with her because I didn't want any of that shit she was selling. Because whew, there was all all that was going to be happening with her was going to be a uh, open the gates of open the floodgates of misery and sadness again. You know, I was scared to acknowledge that she might know something about Flynn or be able to have a message that would come through because I just shut it down, shut it down, shut it down so hard. Um, interestingly, I remember going to her one day saying, I really need to have a session. Yeah. And she didn't didn't talk about Flynn. I was so disappointed with her. I was like, oh, charlatan. And um, she no, wasn't. I, I've had that many times. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. Not a charlatan at all. But but I, um, you know, like, like I think that being okay and being able to connect with him now, it, it wasn't straight away. Um, I would say, you know, it may have been um, only in the last eight years. Wow, yeah. So there was a big sh- it I mean, if you shut down pain, you shut down joy, you shut down openness to what else is possible you shut down connection you, sh- you shut it all down all so far deep down and also it's like how I see it is you have your natural senses which is what you perceive your reality through the physicality so when your eyes are open when you're physically touching things and intuition is like the subtle senses of what you don't see with those senses it's like when you close your eyes and you see images and, and things and and you hear as if someone's talking in your ear or you feel goosebumps or someone's standing behind you but you can't see them. So like like that's the fully, you know, expanded part. And so you, you naturally when you do shut off all the physicality, you sh- of course you'll shut off all the energetics and all of the like whatever is beyond. And I I know this so much because when I went through my miscarriage and I had this really strong energetic like telepathic connection with with Maverick during pregnancy and and um he checked out I I didn't know how to process that because I was confused I was like but he's here but he's not but he's here but he's not so I, I just had to shut off everything because I wasn't sure if he was coming back and then I I felt like having those sensitivities, I was like, what is the gift in this? Because I almost know too much, um, but still I don't, you don't have all the pieces. Like that's the part that I know that they love to, you know, they bring the lightness to this of like this is actually magical and you don't get to have all the answers, you don't get to control all of this. But um, I knew I couldn't connect with him, I couldn't receive him because I was scared of like what it meant, like of of how I had in, I'd painted this picture of how it was all going to play out partly because I wanted to get it right. It was like all the experiences I'd had of maybe people coming to me for readings and testing me to see if I was a charlatan. I was still functioning from like, well, I have to get this spirit baby conversation thing right to prove that like that I know what I'm doing. And that was a massive humbling experience um, because I went back to like I'm human like I'm having a really shit time. 
I'm like grieving. I'm in sorrow and he's still there trying to talk to me. And I just, I was like, no, thanks. <laughs> this is not a fun game for me. Yeah. So I really, I just, it's it's like everyone has that, I guess, like the shutting off and the disconnection and the um, the separation really. Yeah. Of the of losing what you thought were hopes and dreams, and letting it go, and surrendering to a greater plan of design. I know because we are such control beings, aren't we? We are <laughs> yeah. crazy, crazy. Um, and and I think that that shift from glad wrap coveredness numbness, um, it had to be conscious it had to be a choosing and it was scary really scary and I th- and I think that be- because it, it is about while I'm shut down I can control I can control how and when and all that sort of stuff um and opening up again um to feeling is so scary and I think what I was so worried about was that if I start this I will start to cry and I will not start I will not stop crying. And anyone who's sitting there going, well, I'm not doing that because that sounds way too hard. Here's here's something that I learned that I you, you can take away is that you will cry, but the tears will come to an end in that session. You are not going to cry for 4 days straight. Yeah. If you do cry for 4 days straight, you you please seek some professional support because it's it's there, there is an amount I found there was there was sadness, there was waves, and then they'd listen and they'd listen and they'd listen. And then a little while later I could go again. So it wasn't about inflicting pain on myself. It was it was journaling that I was using just to write, just to write about how I was and what I wanted and um, what I didn't like. And and I often say to people, you put your pen, put the pencil on the page. And you don't lift it off the page. Just keep it there. And even if there's nothing to say, just write, I still have the pencil on the page and I have no idea what's going to come next. Just keep writing. Keep And something will happen and something will flow. And you might write, I really do need to change the bed, linen. Um, <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll, you'll write something and it will feel inane, but it will move to something else. And, and I don't know what it will be for you. But there gets to be a, a mechanism that you utilize i know some people use meditation i use journaling and meditation some people will um, do some talk therapy whatever it might look like and i'm sure at least you've got some suggestions too on how to get moving from that stuck place right at the get-go absolutely i think my my go-to was art so i started painting which i've i've shared with with everyone on another episode i started painting these codes I didn't know what they were. I was just like painting. And I later found out there were other actually children coming, contributing their energy to me to help me move through that space. And and it wasn't just like them as like, let's say, how we, we envision them as like children. They were actually creation. I call them like creation codes. So like everywhere that you um have forgotten in that moment that you were creator being and that creation means all parts and in this reality sometimes we only get to focus on the harvest season and we forget about all other parts of creation Mm -hmm. and the depth and the richness that is you know that fire season or that cleansing season that flood season that you know, the, the tears and however this emotion when you decide to make that journey needs to move through you, it's like look at nature. Nature has the answers for everything. Nature doesn't judge. Nature holds you in the truth of the moment that you're in and the cycle that you're in. And we, and so these this was the biggest gift for me was like be in the cycle that you're in but also know that these cycle paths they pass I think that you know art and just being in creation and nature was one incredible healer for me but also finding little wins 
um, whether you call it like a gratitude practice or a celebration practice. When I went through like adrenal fatigue, chronic fatigue, miscarriage, I sometimes couldn't even put food on the table, you know, or even have a shower or, and I needed to be, to get back to like, just acknowledging when I could do that and find like the little tiny wins and the little miracles because sometimes I think we focus on these massive miracles like getting to the end of a pregnancy and having the birth experience and it's like that is the ultimate example of you know what what I can do and 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 what a miracle is but we miss the, the, the you know the the essence of the whole journey and that every moment is a miracle, every choice you made to conceive or to to make that decision that you were going to go ahead, that is a miracle. That choice was a miracle, you know, and and whatever outcome happens is a miracle. So it was getting back to seeing the miracles and being open to, like, the way that, that miracles were being gifted to me and changing my perspective about that. Um, going back to the very simple, simple um, moments in life. So, and I think I think um, you know people want to make it complicated about how we create more joy and happiness and how we move beyond or through or around or whatever it is we're doing with grief. Um, and it's actually it's it's not rocket science. When when people come and work with me, I, I ask them, um, you know, how, where do you find your stillness each day? And they're like, oh, I'm too busy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so find some stillness. Um, how is how's your sleep? You know, well, get get a bit of a sleep routine happening. Are you moving and are you putting some nutrients into your body? And they're like, everyone says those things because they work, right? There's this is it's simple. It's actually there's a simplicity to to we, we're overcomplicating what we want. We're overcomplicating. We're putting things in the way. So there's a simplicity that we need to just to reconnect with. So I love that reminder that it's actually in nature all around us yeah and absolutely as mothering I think the biggest wound that I see is like we're always trying to get it right like that there's a way to get let's just say in pregnancy there's a way to do conception right there's a way to do pregnancy right there's a way to do birth right there's a way to like do post you know um postpartum right and if we just like cut the absolute crap go back to like what feels good for you like no matter what anyone else is doing what what choice is actually going to create the greatest for you and and there's definitely people to welcome in on that journey that can support you in keeping things just really joyful and simple but sometimes like and I'll put my hand up to it like occasionally maybe I've overcomplicated even like advice that I want to give someone because I'm coming from like I want to help you you know and um and then I interfere with actually like you know what it is that is available for that person to choose that only only you would know only you know that individual knows in that moment so I think that notion of um getting it right uh, I remember someone saying to me that um, a, a mother's best friend and worst enemy is another mother, which has a lot of truth to it. And I just wanted to bring it up because I think that um, we can be better allies and advocates for each other, whether we're um, pre-babies, whether we're in the baby mode, whether we are past and, and raising teenagers or choosing not to have children at all, whatever our stage I think that that if we can find ways to be allies and advocates um, is is part of what we're supposed to be doing here as women together because we have enough other shit that goes on around us that is not helping us. So, I, I mean, I remember being at First Time Mothers Group and having um, Lockie, who's my eldest, you know, on the, on the floor, all the babies are on the floor and, and everyone else has got their babies on their stomachs, right? And I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, it's tummy time. And I'm like, what's tummy time? And there was like, you don't know what tummy time is? Oh, my God. And I'm like, oh, shame, guilt, quick, turn my baby over, you know, make sure his neck's getting developed and all the things. Like, I mean, I know it's a really small, small thing. That's so, that's like so appropriate. <laughs> but it's, but I think that, 
we get to just check in with ourselves. Are we affirming, uplifting, um, being alongside um, another? Because there was a there was a question that you asked um, me to have a think about, like what have I learned from my children? And this really fits here, so can I answer that now? Yes. yes. Right. So the when I was thinking about it, the first word came in and I was like, oh, no, that's not the word. That's not the thing because I know, right, hello, it's the word. <laughs> Um, so it's humility. So I daily, daily I get to, and what that means for me is that my ego can get all big and shiny and take up a whole lot of energy in the, in the room with, and I get these doses of humility fed back to me through my kids and through my experience of parenting that enables me to just to push that and have that be a healthy thing and not an unresourceful thing. So um, it goes to um, this notion that some people will, will look at their baby and look at their child and look at their teenager as their report card on parenting. And I, I say, your child is not your report card. You are not a good parent because your child got an A and you're not a bad parent because your child got an A. Your child got the A, right? Like it actually has nothing to do, it's not a reflection on you because that means that the child who is not coping and school refusing and having eating disorders, oh, that's because you're a bad parent. Bullshit. You love that kid. You've done what you can to support them. You're, you're you know, secure, creating secure attachments, all the things. You've read the books, you do the do. Our kids aren't a report card on us. If we didn't get into the rep basketball team, but we can get our kids to the rep basketball team, it doesn't mean that we are a rep basketball per person. Do you know what I mean? Like I think that they, we get so tied up with our ego through our kids. And so I get reminded so often just to, make, just to release, release the expectation, release what I thought it was going to look like, release the um, this notion of control. I have teenagers and young adults now in my life, 23, 21, and 16. Mate, I am not in control. <laughs> I love that. But what's really beautiful is um, so when you've got little kids, you know, it's like it's you know, 5, 6, 7, 7.30, it's really busy and it's all, you know, guns blazing and, okay, then you get them to bed and you're like, phew, you're on the couch having a cup of tea. And then they creep out and they're like, mom, and you're like, <laughs> I used to say, are you bleeding? Have you wet the bed? They're the only two reasons I need to see you. <clears throat> anyway, um, but now what happens for us is that it gets to 10.30 at night and they start coming home from work, from jobs, from going out, whatever, and they sit on the couch with us. And that's when our family time is. Um, and they connect and they want to share about their day. And I just love that. I love that they want to spend that time with us. And that I find humbling as well. Like how beautiful that, you know, the people that they think are, are worthy to hear their stories are their parents. Like I'm, I'm really, you know, so grateful that that's the space that we sit in. But also I'll come out in an outfit or a new pair of earrings and the withering look from the 16-year-old, I'm like, ah, I don't think so. Like, okay, I thought I was doing really like okay, thanks, I'll pop my ego over here and I'll just take a little chill about that. And or, if, you know, okay, I don't need to have the acceptance of the 16-year-old. Like there's a lot of learning, always, always, always learning. Um, and so I think humility is what they share with us over and over and over again. My gosh. <laughs> yes, I have. I'm, I'm not even going to like say anything about that because I think it just speaks everything and I I'm only at the start like I've got you know almost five year old and a 16 month old and there's a lot more learning <laughs> absolutely a lot more learning they don't come with instruction manuals and anyone listening to this just another thing don't be scared of teenagerhood it's beautiful it's really great you will you will be cut down over and over again um <laughs> But they are they come out the other end they do they come out the other end I know a lot of people are scared of teenagers but don't you, you survived it. You, you'll be fine. Yeah, you were one. You were exactly. You, you did it yeah. once. You know. You know what they're doing. You know the shitstorm that that is on going inside your own heart and your own head when you were that age, and you just have to ride with it. And so, I mean, oh God, there's so many questions that I know I could keep asking you. Um, 
so I'm mindful of our time together. But I wonder, because there's obviously a part where you were able to, um, I, I, I know you talked about it, about the choices you made because of children. So maybe could you like talk about that piece where you as yourself and, and you know, all of these emotions that you put aside, um, did you make the children one of the reasons why you, you wouldn't go there? Oh, for sure. I mean, I was, as I said, you know, Jesse was, Jesse was two and Lockie was four and I would hear myself screaming at them, you know, screaming. We had we lived on a bit of property, I'm sure the neighbours heard, and I hated that about me. I hated that my capacity to be there with them was so wafer thin, you know, because I was just so engulfed in this sadness and and just, um, you know, you know, trying to move through this fog of this grief. And so I did. I actually I thought I, I can't do this to them. And I can't do this to them. They need me. They really need a mum. And I've really been absent. And so I I did. I packed it away because they, yeah, they were they were having less. You know what I mean? I was having, I was giving them less. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I remember our um, middle uh, child, Jess, had trouble with reading, you know, at about uh, age, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And we had done everything. We'd done the op. The, the glasses and we checked this and we checked that and the school didn't know what was going on and we couldn't put the pieces together and you know I remember going to a kinesiologist and saying reading could you help is there something you could do here and she said to me um what happened when he was two and I was just this, this massive flood of tears because I was like oh my god what happened when he was two well he lost his brother and he lost his mother for a period of time and you know that the guilt of not being there but also you know, now I look back on her. I look back on her 19 years later. I did what I, I did the best that I, would, I could have. And I think that whilst I might still carry a bit of guilt around um, about the absenceness that I had going on at that time, um, I think it's really normal as well. I, you know, I, I, I get just to release that. So I think that, um, yeah, being a mum, having other children needing me or feeling like I was neglecting them and needed to do more and be more present, that really was a catalyst for putting that grief away. Um, but maybe I would have found a catalyst in any circumstance that I was in. Do you know what I mean? Because it was really shit place. I didn't want to be there. So um, that's potentially the catalyst that, that I was using in, the, in that space. Incredible. I feel like I, I mean, I know this conversation is just as much for me as anyone listening because um, I've noticed parts where I don't feel like I'm as present with my children and and that even though, you know, the, the, the baby that I was communicating that I miscarried was very much Maverick who's here now and he did come back, that there's still a part of me that feels like there was a loss and my mum actually talked about this recently when my older brother had a massive car accident, but he didn't die, but but she couldn't quite explain, like, you know, why she felt this way. And I think that physically when something like that happens, even if, you know, all other parts have come back around in a different way, that there's still there's a part of you that feels like an emptiness um, and I can't, you know, I don't entirely have words for it. I'm just aware that um, even though everything I've asked for is like is here physically and I'm able to hold him and I'm so grateful for that because I know that a lot of babies, that's not their choice. They don't come back. They just like to dip their toe in and they make a huge contribution um, to the family and they like to show up as well. You know, it's just as fun for some of them not to have bodies and to contribute that way, like, um that I still like I still struggle with like the physical part of my body that had something happen and I didn't you know I just wanted to ask you like how did you decide I mean I know that you were already in a public space right like I, it was very easy for me to just like not tell anyone or 
you know, or obviously the people that maybe knew not really go into it because I just shut myself off and I didn't have much of a community around me. But, you know, and so I kept myself alone in that and just tried to, like, heal it really fast. Um, But I do sense there's still a part where it does affect me, Mm. I can see, Um, and it's not necessarily understood by my partner or by people around me because they chose to shut it off and just get on with life. So I just am curious, like, how did you decide that it wasn't something when you talked about it that you would just shut off from and how did you let people see you in that? So, and well, as I said, it was quite public and I was obviously pregnant and, and you know, I had a big belly going on um, and we had we had a funeral for Flynn and Matt said to me, um, why aren't we having, like, who, who would come to a funeral for a baby? He, he said, he, no one knew him. And I think there were, you know, three or 400 people at, at Flynn's funeral. Like it was really big because that, I said to Matt, they're not coming for him, they're coming for us. You know, they want to connect with us and show that beautiful support. Um, and I remember being um, back at school, you know, after those six weeks because I was fixed and a, a preppy came up to me in the yard and she goes, your baby died. And I said, yeah. Yeah, he did. Like, you know, that, that little no-filter five-year-old sort of thing happening. Um, so so we were, it was public in that in that sense. And then it became very private. So um, I, I used to watch other people sharing on social media on their baby's anniversaries and I'm like, can't do that, can't do that. No, nah, that's not going to be, that's not me, that's not, blah, blah, no, nah. you know. Don't know what they're doing that for, sort of, sort of thing, for many years, um, and then I did. One year, I, I I felt that I needed to, and this is this little nudge, you know, little nudges that you get, and whether it was Flynn, ready, me, ready, the combination of the two, and I remember sharing, um, maybe about maybe six years ago, about his birthday, and there were a lot of people that didn't know his story and our story with him. There were a lot that did, but new people that we'd met didn't know it. Um, and it was amazing how many women reached out, you know, this is my story too. I lost twins and my husband won't talk about it with me. We don't talk about them. Um, you know, I this is my, you know, it, it's, it's sad how many of us, uh, out there, it's a, it's a club that no one wants to be a member of, but we're also really isolated in that club because it's not spoken about and not talked about. So every year now, you know, I always um, commemorate and celebrate his birthday, um, and I, if some people um, don't know that I have a community radio program that I started um, last August, out of the blue, just it just happened. I don't know why I'm doing it. I love it. Uh, there's no sort of, you know, through line trajectory to how this is going to further my career. I don't know, but I get to have conversations with people that I get to choose and it's it's a really amazing. And I, I actually chose to invite um, the grief, the bereavement organisations, they're called Hope Bereavement Care, who are in Geelong, who supported me 19 years ago. I said, can you come and talk maybe once a month, maybe once every six weeks on my program about grief and loss and bereavement? Yeah. Because we need to talk about this. This needs to be something that is, they get some light on it because it's going to happen to all of us, whether we're losing a partner, a parent, a child, a colleague at work, whether a colleague at work is losing all those people. Like we Yourself need to have, during motherhood. <laughs> yeah, we need, we need to have all these um, opportunities and building capacity to, to talk about grief. So it was public. It became very private. Um, and now it's public again. And and I, you know, the, the moment, the time that it was private for those years, maybe it was just enabling me to build reserves. I'm not quite sure why. Yeah. But, it, but it's um it's public again now. But it, interestingly, when you reached out and said, would you like to do this podcast about Flynn? I had a lot of resistance. I was like, whoa, no, <laughs> because usually I'm in charge of the story. Do you know what I mean? Usually I'm I'm interviewing people about loss and sharing what feels right for me. So it was, um, and thank you for continually reaching out and, and, and enabling that we could have this conversation um, because uh, it was interesting, the resistance that came up. 
And even just hearing this conversation, because I, I guess it's something that I realise, maybe I'll start crying, <laughs> that I've perhaps avoided a little bit um, because that means I have to acknowledge, you know, that there's a part of me that's like still hurting because, because I wasn't received in that in that loss. And so I went into fix it mode and I was like, I did, and everything I did is like none of it's wrong and it was just so beautiful but it got me to a place where I could receive a pregnancy again and have exactly the experience that I really wanted to have and have my little man and, and all of that. But it, I think it's it's making me realise how important it is to like be acknowledged in that experience and whether it's that, you know, you just don't have that, support network at the time that it's it gives me hope and I don't know why you said that name but like because the name is something it's it's the bereavement service service it literally gives me that to go okay well it doesn't mean that those people aren't out there and to don't give up like for that part of yourself that that needs to be received that needs to be acknowledged that needs to know that needs to tell that story to heal um so I'm so glad I asked. It, it was kind of a weird sort of posed question, but I'm, I'm glad it got us here because I can see like I need that. I, I know when I had that experience, I was like, well, no one's talking about it. What do I do? Who do I go? And I called some helpline a couple of times and had a few meltdowns. And then I felt like that was it, like that I couldn't actually receive any more from them because it was a free service. And and I went in my head like, oh, no, I've got to, I've got to you know, pay to get yeah. there yeah. Um, and so it's That's, funny how like the receiving part of it is such a big piece of like when you don't feel received in something it also inhibits your ability to receive and ask for what you need because you get caught up in other people's um, points of view or their lack of knowledge or information about an experience and you allow that to um you know, impact and just create all of these unnecessary like feelings of like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have that. Maybe I, um, it's not you know, valid. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like denying part of it, the truth yeah. of who you are. Yeah, and and the, the hard thing is that bereavement, it it doesn't sit. It's it's not a mental health uh, con- condition. It can lead to you know mental health issues, but bereavement isn't. It it's it's a part of our life experience. So, but it doesn't sit under that mental health bundle um which you know there isn't enough services in there there anyway um and so so where does it sit you know where, where does this um this support sit so it's and it's not a medical support like you know all the bits are working thank you very much it's not it sits with my you know my obstetrician or those sort of people so it, it does sit in an isolated space and unfortunately for these services their funding is also in a bit of a grey area and so it is hard to continually do this support. And I actually thought that this Hope Bereavement Service this, this, that I experienced, I thought they were Australia-wide. They actually only exist in Geelong. Wow. And and I'm like, what what do women do then? What if they don't have hope? I don't, hello, this is news to what me. They don't have hope, literally. Yeah. They don't have hope, literally, that's right. And so this is, um, this is, and I... And if it's okay, I'll, I'll segue into my take up space yes, piece because this has really fired me up. This almost like awakening to things that need more light, things that need elevation, things that need the oxygen to grow and to breathe and to create um, better, better, you know, experiences for us all. So with take up space, what I'm really encouraging people to do is to do that, is to take up space, is to feel into what is it that they think that we it maybe maybe it's a it's a uh, a movement that that you want to start. Maybe it's a, a message that you want to get out there. Maybe there's something happening that you're like, you know, that's not right. And this is this actually gets to be changed. So instead of it just being in your head, like how can you take up space with that? Can you repost someone else's post that articulates it beautifully like, oh, that's what I think. Repost that. Take up space on your social media about something that's important to you. Or maybe it's um, it's writing a letter. Maybe it's doing a fundraiser. Maybe it's holding a morning tea, raising some funds for 
climate action, um, homelessness, raising the uh, the awareness of um, women with disabilities in your community. I don't know. What's the thing? What's the thing that you keep getting nudged about? Like there, there is a thing. There is a nudge that's happening to you and we get to a allow that in, all right, allow that inspiration to, to be and then we get to work on our belief about who am I to do this and do I have capacity and surely I'm too busy and I don't think I don't have the experience and hello, work on that. Yeah. And then three, we just need to understand if I get to be create courageous, if this actually is going to take me to really step outside my comfort zone and maybe write a blog about something that I feel really passionate about but no one else is talking about, like mis- miscarriage, what, what safety do I get to come back to? What is it that I get to do for myself to ensure once I've got outside the comfort zone, I can come back into the comfort zone? And what does it look like for me? Is it some journaling? Is it some meditation? Is it a hug from a gorgeous person in my life? Is it a, a cup of cacao? I don't know. What's, what's the thing? How do we create safety for ourselves? Because I can tell you it's not online gambling. It's not <laughs> uh, alcohol. It's not shopping. They are not places of safety. So what, sa- what safety do I have so I can, I can go out, do the thing, come back, be safe. And then what's the thing going to look like? What am I doing? What's my action? Where, what am I going to do? You know, is it the podcast that, you know, that you know, you're beautifully leading in this space, Elise? Is it writing the letter? Is it um, having conversations with men in your life about what it's like to be a woman so they can understand this whole shit thing about gender pay equity, Right. Is it about having conversations with your girlfriends about how how painful your period is, and that you live on Nurofen um, every month, you know, once a week every month for the next forty years about your endometriosis diagnosis? Like, what's it going to look like for you? So, that's what I'm doing at the moment. <laughs> this is my take up space. This is this is, and I, I think that. Um, when I, when the radio thing landed and I was like, oh, I might do this radio thing. I'm not quite sure why I'm doing it. My, I just start to bring in people who I think their voices get to be elevated, their messages get to be put out there so that we can create a community that we really want to be part of. Does that make sense? Totally. And, <clears throat> I mean, there's so much that I feel like we're going to talk again. We have to because <laughs> we could just go off a million different rabbit holes. Um, but just to clarify, like, so the takeout space movement is something that anyone can access. Like, you have some some tools on your website, which I can. I have, post. Yeah. It's, it's and it's just it's just starting takeupspace.com.au. There's a tool there that those four steps: the inspiration, belief, support, and action. I just outline them and just give you some journaling questions, just some questions that like maybe help start to tick over. There's going to be a day that I'm going to run down here in Ocean Grove just to actually work people through that whole process. Um, and I want to help people elevate their voice. So it's this might just plant a seed for someone, you know. Totally. And taking up space, it might look, it's going to look different for everyone. And sometimes it's going to look like you taking up space in your own head because a lot of people tend to rent the space up here. Yeah. Okay. And it might just be that you create more space for you here. and or it might be a, a, a small practice you take on that creates, you know, maybe, maybe it's about reclaiming your body, you know, after feeding and babies and oh, all the things and people climbing on you and wiping their nose on you. Maybe there's a, there's a time in your week where you just take up that space for you, like whatever that looks like, okay? It's just starting because we have so much capacity and so much brilliance so we get to take up space with it. I feel like that's like the biggest, biggest nugget for everyone, for all of us women is, and I, I know we probably hear about it more and more now and like you go, what, what does that look like? So go check out these tools with some, um, you know, some simple questions to help you start that process and and I certainly will be doing that myself. And you also have a podcast too for the Happy Chicks podcast. I do have Happy Chicks podcast, season one and season two. Season one is conversations about um, ways to happiness. So I got two great friends on with me each different episode, like all these great women that you get to hear from. And we we nut into like what, is, what does courage look like if you're going to use that to greater happiness? What does acceptance look like for greater happiness? What does compassion look like for greater happiness? What does all the things? So there's, there's a whole season on that. And the second season um, what I'm doing is I'm taking um, – 
inspirational conversations from my um, radio show and just popping them into small segments and popping them up. So, yeah, go and check it out. Um, be lovely to see you there. I'll pop all the details for those in the show notes and I think I will take this as our cue to wrap up this conversation whilst it will continue and I'd love to have you back. But I'm just, thank you so, so much for saying yes. Thank you for opening your heart. Thank you to Flynn for um, encouraging this conversation and for his magic um, and miracles to bring us together. Um, and anyone else listening to this podcast, if you enjoyed the conversation, please share it with any mama um, or any, you know, husband as well that could just do with a little bit of a, an understanding about this conversation. And like we said, it's it needs to be brought to the light. It needs to be acknowledged and um, every experience is valid. I think that's my biggest thing is like it doesn't matter how short your, your pregnancy was, like you said, um, a loss is a loss and you get to like you get to be supported in that and, um, and have, your, have your say in the world and take up space with your, your story. So mm -hmm. if you enjoyed this, um, also hit subscribe and I can't wait to catch you next week. Thank you so much, Loretta. Thanks, Elise. In the spirit of reconciliation, this podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.